So we're working on clarification of right effort. It's just an absolutely critical thing, and to spend a week on it is nothing really. It needs to be a focus in order to understand right mindfulness and right concentration, we really have to understand right effort. So that the last three factors of the path are called the higher aspects of the path, the development of the higher mind, the adhicitta, the higher mind. And it begins at right effort. The previous path factors are arranging foundations for this, right speech, right action, right livelihood. Right view of course, also requires wisdom. It's just getting the basis of where the context or the the overarching aim of the path, and then once you get those preliminaries cleared out, then you initiate this more refined development, which begins at right effort. And it's so many things can be cleared up if we really spend time on that. Again, uh, you can roughly divide it into two parts. The first is the negative, and the second is the positive. That which is to be abandoned, and that which is to be cultivated. And then the rest of the explanation, once you understand what those are, the rest is the details of how you go about doing this. And in some ways, right mindfulness, coming afterwards, is in the employ of right effort. It is the servant, the that which carries out the instructions of right effort. And right mindfulness is a very restricted type of mindfulness. Its job is exclusively to carry out the instructions of right effort. It's hired, basically. The definition is that it's, the Buddha gives a, the primary definition is the sentry that guards the, the mind, basically. The entire inner workings, that which starts at the outer surface of the body, and goes to the center, the consciousness at the center of the body. And mindfulness is extremely active and critical, but is only exclusively at the service of the instructions in right effort. And so the sentry is extremely important in all kinds of conditions. You see you have security systems in your house. Banks have security systems. They have security guards. Countries have military, border guards, etc. And if they don't, then what happens afterwards is very, very difficult to manage. And so that is the critical first defense, is that scrutiny, informed scrutiny, And that has to be reliable, and it's not enough to be a, a very good observer. It's a particular type of observer. Usually in times of war, 
a sentry who falls asleep on duty could be shot. It's that dangerous. Everybody's exposed. If the sentry isn't observant, then once the enemy is in, it's very hard to get out. So this sentry is informed by right effort, and the right effort is there are things to keep out and things to welcome in. And there's a beautiful simile that the Buddha gives. It's called the city. And he not only gives the simile, sort of a parable, but he also explains it. And sometimes uh, the suttas are full of similes, metaphors, analogies, and parables. And sometimes the Buddha doesn't explain what's going on. He, he thinks that you'll get it through that version, or and quite often it's left to the commentaries later on to kind of clarify what he means by these things. There's a lot of sophisticated language and imaginative stories in order to convey things. And quite often if you're if the audience is literal, very literal, they really miss the whole point of the exercise. The language of the Buddha is called, often uh, a famous monk named Ajahn Buddhadasa would talk about Dhamma language. The suttas and the language of the Buddha must be understood as a special language. And the Buddha often would talk about this. He would say, in this doctrine and dispensation, this is the meaning of this word. So he uses uh, words, but he says, you must understand that this is how we understand it in this doctrine and dispensation, in this Dhamma. So we really have to pay attention that there's a level of sophistication, and you have to get the point of the story. You have to get the moral of the story if you're going to enter into the reality that the Buddha is trying to present. Literalisms just go to a very brief beginning, and then after that you have to understand there's special meanings, special understanding of these things. It's not trying to be difficult or mystifying. It's the very opposite. But certain kind of things do not translate very well in the common vocabulary, and, and so one has to borrow these terms, because that's all we have is common vocabulary, but it has a special meaning. So this story is about this walled city and the gatekeeper. There is a gatekeeper in this walled city. There are six roads leading to this walled city. Within the gates of the walled city are four roads which lead to the center of the city. And in the center of the city, the king resides. The gatekeeper is commissioned to admit only two messengers. And these messengers arrive, and after interrogation by mindfulness, the sentry, they are admitted to the city, 
and they go by four roads to the king and give a report of the kingdom. So they're especially consigned to evaluate the state of the kingdom outside the walled city and give an accurate report. Then the Buddha talks about what this means. Who is the sentry? Who is the messengers? Who is the king? What is the walled city? What are the six roads? What are the four roads? He explains that the six roads are the six senses. Eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind. The walled city is the the place where this sight, sound, smells, taste, touches, and ideas arrive. In other words, the body, the location of the sense doors. The outer kingdom is the outside world, the universe around you. The two messengers are samatha and vipassana. And vipassana is quite often, in some strange way, misused. You've heard it, you hear it all the time, vipassana. You don't hear samatha so much, but you hear vipassana all the time, as if it was a technique of meditation, a form of meditation. But vipassana is this messenger that arrives with samatha. So samatha and vipassana are two agents which deliver an accurate report of the kingdom. Now the kingdom is the world that you perceive through the senses and through thought. And they're the only ones that are admitted. The other agents try to enter, but the role of this gatekeeper, which is revealed to be sati, mindfulness, is you can plainly see that mindfulness is not simply observation or awareness of the rising and passing away of things. It is discriminating awareness, which only admits the evidence of serene clarity. Samatha means serene focus, and vipassana means exceptional clarity. Pasana means to see. And V is a kind of an emphasis, so it means to see clearly. With focused serenity, to see the truth clearly. What truth? Well, we'll find out once they get to talk to the king. They enter the kingdom, and now the six roads have been reduced to four roads. And by these four roads, so the actual, the four roads are... Now that this information is within the body, the walled city is the body with consciousness at the center. The king turns out to be consciousness. The four roads are what the body is composed of. And simply, now you have to forget modern ideas about what descriptions of the body. The Buddha describes it as composed of four elements. That is, there's solidity, and there's fluidity, so there's earth and water, temperature, fire, and air. 
These are the traditional four elements. They shouldn't be thought to be sort of a folk idea about the composition of the world. They're actually how you experience the world. It's quite obvious that we, these four elements are really obvious even as a child. It is basically four things that you can really see. And you'll see this again and again in each culture, that the solidity of the earth, the solid things, and then there's the liquid things, and then there's the air, and then there's the heat, this heat element. And these are the primary elements. This is how you directly experience the world. You don't actually experience atoms or electrons or anything like this. You don't experience all kinds of things that we have, we understand exist and so forth, but that's not the way you experience the world. And so the Buddha is how you experience the world is your primary emotional conditioning is to how your direct experience of the world is. And your body, it's quite obvious that we're in... Well, maybe it's not obvious. It's amazing that people... Well, we see this as the cause of the ecological problems is that people view themselves as quite other than the world around them. But the Buddha points out that you're, you know, you're taking the earth, like a a cabbage or something like this, that the seed goes in there and earth turns into a cabbage, which then you take and eat. So you're, you're imbibing the earth element and you, you are, you are no other than this solid element. This solid element is circulating through you, comes in and out and in and out. Then the liquids, of course, we're right, we're seeing it all the time. We're taking water, the water element, and just dumping it into us. And then it's, it's passing through us in all kinds of ways. It, it's going out through the skin in sweat and evaporation, etc. And then the fire element, we internalize that through the sun, through all kinds of mediums, and we also radiate and continuously radiate this. They, they're very aware of the, the... If the heat element is not there, you're dead. <laughs> but this heat element, is, you're very, in a very interesting relationship to... If you're near a warm object, the warm object, heat doesn't distinguish you from the environment. It just goes wherever is cooler. So heat radiates from warm to cool. And so there's a continuous field of warmth always going to that which is less heat. And air, of course, is the feature of this air. All you got to do is miss a few breaths and you're going to turn back to earth. <laughs> so this is uh, just kind of your direct experience. is very connected to, without having sophisticated ideas about elements and so forth, any further than that. That's your kind of direct experience. I should say that Buddhism does have a very sophisticated kind of physics, actually, which is usually, you find that in what's called Abhidhamma. And they try to, just like the Greeks did and what modern science does, they try to analyze it down to the smallest unit possible. They take everything apart. They take the body and mind apart down to its smallest units in the physical dimension. 
and in the mental dimension. They take everything apart. What we would call, I suppose, in modern science, reduction, reductionism. They were into it too. <laughs> but that's a special kind of analysis. And for the person who is kind of sophisticated and intellectual and inclined that way, that actually can be a topic of meditation, is reducing the body, in, for instance, the body into 32 parts or all of its possible elements. It helps dissolve the illusion of a solid entity, the self, the sense, sense of substantial self. It dissolves that by analyzing. But anyway, at the center of the city, the messengers arrive and inform this king consciousness. And what does, what, what, they give a true report of the state of the kingdom, and that is that everything out there, O great king, is impermanent, not permanent, unsatisfactory, not satisfactory, without substance, without essential identity, and instead of identity and substance. And that's an accurate report of their mission. Now that means that consciousness, quite often consciousness is described in Buddhism. Consciousness is consciousness of sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and mental activity. With your mind, you can see your mind. <laughs> it's a strange thing. The mind can see itself in action. So this just describes consciousness as a mere experience of sights. Like there's just neutrality there. But this king is actually being informed. So there's some element of wisdom in this. Consciousness in this description, in this simile, this parable, has a kind of discriminating wisdom. It's learning and also being reminded of the nature of life, of reality. And that's the duty of these two messengers, the duty of samatha and clarity, vipassana, is to constantly feed back an accurate report to consciousness, that aspect of ourselves that looks out on the world and makes choices or informs the decision-making process. The decision-making process is called something else, it's called sankhara. But consciousness is one of the sources for this. It's the information bank by which decisions are made, and that bank better be accurate. It better have accurate information, accurate structure, because decisions are going to arise out of that. And on a practical basis, you will see in your life that as you mature and get more information about the world, things that used to excite you and that you were sure you wanted after experience, you may find that you understand the nature of that object and that you're neither perhaps repulsed by it or afraid of it or want it and think that it will bring you sort of eternal happiness. So when you're a child, it just all it takes is a colorful rattle. And that's, that is a 
incredibly desirable object. And you have the misunderstanding that it's also edible. So you try to stick it in your mouth. It's very pretty and makes a sound and so forth. Now, as you get a little bit older, you get to be even two or three, and then it just, yeah, it's not tasty. It turns out it's not tasty, and you know that now. And you know also that it's just a very transient little toy. And so you you have seen something, and you're no longer under the spell of your previous ignorance, your previous naivety. So you're growing in your consciousness and wisdom and you're developing. And this process of the spiritual path is no more, no other than that. You're just growing through stages of perception about the nature of the world, which is apprehended through sights and sounds and smells and tastes and touches and through mental processes, internal mental processes. Things that you thought would make you happy for, if you could just get it, this, get a, this relationship, get this money, get this job, get this car, get this this and that, then you would just be happy. And then, turns out, no. It is also unstable and subject to... It's out of your control, ultimately, and uh, it has its downsides, and you start to realize this, and you get experience. And so this is actually vipassana. This is a growing clarity about the nature of the things that you at first thought, if you could just get that, then you'd be happy. Also in the negative direction, outbursts of anger. So you see that in children, you know, they fly off the handle, especially the terrible twos and so forth. But even, you know, when you're a teenager, you can fly off the handle for, and then as time goes by, you, Hopefully, if you mature, <laughs> some people get stuck at, the, <laughs> at those levels. Uh, you, you don't. You don't get so upset over these things. You moderate that because you have experience. And so this is the development of samatha and vipassana. And a lot of events in your life can be processed only in serene recollection that really to understand a situation in your life, you, in the heat of the times or in, in the immediate following, it's, it's unclear, the emotions are strong, but in serene recollection, you understand where you made your mistakes, why you overreacted, you begin to see it in perspective. That's also the value of serenity, you can't really properly process memories except in serenity. In serenity, you see it closer to the way it really is with all of the aspects of it. So this is this process, and right effort is the preliminary description of all of this process that's going to go on and the function of mindfulness. So which are the ones that are not admitted to this city and not allowed to give a distorted report of reality to consciousness? And in brief, it is five hindrances. 
these five shall not be admitted to this. So this is what right effort informs mindfulness. Here's your job. These five do not get past the wall. There are seven that are to be welcomed in that give accurate accounts, and those are the seven factors of awakening, which I'll talk about more. What's to be done with these five hindrances? The first is to prevent them from arising, so to prevent them from coming in altogether. That's the easiest to stop trouble before it starts. What, you know, when, when is a good time to do this? Well, any time, actually. But just more in a sense that the beginning of the day is the time to just take a little bit of time before rushing off into the world without reviewing and preparing yourself for how you wish to negotiate the day, what it is that is not to be brought into your experience today. Uh, just a few minutes of sitting down, you know, five minutes even, and just saying, okay, you know, there, there's going to be various kind of stimulus coming at me. There's going to be sights and sounds, smells, tastes, touches, and ideas, which I, you call the world, but actually the world is experienced just at, you know, it's just a sight, it's just a sound, it's a smell, it's a taste, it's a touch, it's an idea. That's how it's really experienced. It's within you. The world is experienced within you. And just to review that, to say, now, what am I not going to do in response to these sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches, and ideas? Well, I've taken up the path, and the advice in the path is, okay, non-anger. Yes, uh, there can be some provocative events today. There can be some frustrations. The world is not under your command, and it doesn't listen to you, and doesn't obey you. And even your body is not under your command, doesn't listen to you and obey you. When it presents you with something that is not pleasant, you have to remember, okay, that aversion, irritability, anger, even hatred is not, will not fly. It's not one of the resources that I can use anymore. By the way, that is a primary and natural resource you see embodied in the animals. It's obviously a very primary, natural function of the mind, that aversion and hostility. But it's kind of old brain kind of thing, so it's quite embedded in human nature as well. But in human nature, we can actually reflect and transcend it. We can find other ways of dealing with the unwanted, with the painful, with the frustrating. We have other resources which we can deal with that. And we do not have to rely on that particular mode of emotion, the anger. And so that's our job. I mean, it's a very amusing game. I tell you, it's, uh, you make the determination and then it catches you just, you know, you just drop your guard for a second and you're back into it. You know, you're already irritability. 
But by doing this prevention idea, you're heading it off of the past. It's amazing. If you just took five minutes and said, wait, now just let me remember. What is it? Yeah, right. Okay. No anger. Don't get lost in something you want. You know, you want, you want, you want. That's greed. Don't get lost in that. That's harder to understand, actually. The anger thing, you can sort of understand how it's a very negative experience. The greed thing is harder to understand. But I, I want that. <laughs> and it's not bad that I want. It's a thing, you know, it's, a, it's stuff. And what's wrong with wanting that? So one has to reflect on what's wrong with wanting that. What is it that happens that is, that could be a better, you could be in a better state. You have to reflect on that ahead of time, get some understanding about that. Agitation and sloth, heaviness are tricky as well because it kind of sweeps over us. We're not even, it's not something we we're really all that conscious of. We just feel unable to relax and just nervous energy and sometimes. But we have to recognize that as, can I prevent that? Can I induce a sense of serenity ahead of time so that this is naturally arising? Or, and just, lots of people just, they'll report that, oh, I'm just in you know, such an agitated mood. They have no, they have no sense that they could possibly do anything about that. So, they just consider it as just part of who they are and what they are. So the very idea that you could actually head this off at the pass or influence it in a certain way is already a novel idea and it's already changing the whole structure. The opposite is this heaviness and sloth. And that again, people tend to just believe it and fall into it. But we have to do the opposite. We have to headed off the pass, and if it starts to occur, we have to rouse energy, find some means to overcome this. The last one is just being lost in, in doubt. And that often is prevented by just some serenity to begin with. Quite often, doubt is just a side effect of an overactive mind. The mind itself is a problem maker, creates things that don't need to be created, and they probably don't even need to be solved, problems which don't need to be solved because they weren't really problems to begin with. So just a bit of serenity ahead of time can often prevent the manufacturing of problems, most of which need to be not solved, but just dissolved back into serenity. So these are kind of some of the tactics for prevention is the best, and it's the very first in the four right efforts, prevention, stop trouble before it starts. And so that's something that really heads off a lot of problems. And so you need to just go over how many ways there are to do this. And maybe there's all kinds of methods, like you can set your little wristwatch to remind you every two hours that, oh, all right, okay, prevention. Just stop it before it starts. 
it's one of the most effective of all things. It doesn't take a lot of time. It's just kind of a reminder. You know, you know yourself as well. That in certain situations, you become very impatient and get lost in the work. And you, you know, uh, some people don't. They're quite patient. They don't bring a lot of anxiety to something or so forth. But you got to know yourself. What is? What are your triggers? What are the situations where you get carried away and then you think, "Dang, got me again." <laughs> If you, ha- if you can just reflect on that ahead of time and say, you know, when I go shopping, I get carried away. I'm nattering about the stores and the clerks, and, and I'm kind of in a... I get lost in irritability about it, or the opposite, I really get into it. I really just like it, you know. You've got to say, now, what is my configuration here? What is it that I need to remind myself just a while before I go into this. And then the next job is to sort of attempt to maintain that through the process. If you can do it even once, you know that it's just a lack of preparation. And you can try it. The monks are advised every morning when they have to leave their nice meditative monastery and go on alms round through the local village, they have to confront everyday life. There's all kinds of things all over the streets and sounds and sights and so forth. And the Buddha is saying, you know, just try to walk through the village. Don't pay attention to aversive things and attractive things. Don't, don't, don't hang on to them. Prepare yourself. When you arrive at the village, prepare to restrain your senses. Restrain them. Don't get lost in the aversive. Don't get lost in the attractive. You just got to get through the village. It shouldn't take more than 20 minutes. And then you'll be out in a more low sensory experience and you'll have carried your peace through this. By the way, so it's not, that's not really a great amount of wisdom that it takes. The Buddha is very much into preventing the symptoms as well. You know, when you have an illness, it's not just curing the illness, but yeah, take care of the symptoms as well. So he's um, not saying, oh, if you are wise enough, you can look at anything, you can deal with anything. He's saying, no, basically don't test yourself with this. Restrain Restrain your sensory experience of the aversive and the attractive. Focus on the walk keep your eyes down, don't pay attention to sounds, just go through. You can practice this uh, in ordinary life, just go to the mall and see if you can walk through without being stained by it. The experience, neither aversive nor attractive, just see if you can walk through it with composure, without focusing on and extracting out of the things that are around you, either the sign of the of the fault, the ugly, or the sign of the beautiful. Just walk through it and see how you feel when you come out the other side. You will have just had the experience of being Socrates. That's what Socrates said. He went shopping often to see all the things he didn't need. Came back serene. So he wasn't going there to see the things that he liked or wanted. He was, he was going there to see that he could walk through it and feel perfectly content at the beginning and the middle and the end. His contentment was what he needed, not those things.
So this is a kind of exercise you can also do in the midst of ordinary life. Monks have to walk through towns and cities and etc. And they, they have, that's the idea is walk through it with sense restraint, without extracting the negative and the, and the beautiful. And you will remain undisturbed, you'll remain content, you'll come out peaceful. So this is part of the prevention structure, this first right effort. So I'll leave that beginning of right effort for you tonight.